Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, navigating the new normal presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and the economy, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plow. I am the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabbi Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a model of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. And visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online and donate at AFRMC.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on our audience's support to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is, what is the future of our energy supply? Thank you to our very special guest, Jason Bordoff, co-founding Dean of Columbia University's Climate School, Deborah Gordon, Senior Fellow in International and Public Affairs at Brown University, and Matthew Hudson, writer and author at the New Yorker magazine. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. The question of how we supply ourselves with energy looms large behind lots of big stories in the news these days. The most pressing domestic political issue is inflation, uh, to which rising prices for petroleum and natural gas have contributed mightily. Russia's imminent threat to European countries who support Ukrainian independence isn't just military, it's that several of those countries depend on Russia for natural gas. And in Saudi Arabia, after the CIA identified the crown prince as the one who ordered the assassination of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, Joe Biden, as presidential candidate, said he'd treat that country as a pariah. But in fact, Saudi oil reserves are so vast that they can move global prices, uh, and in reality, as we've seen, uh, the policy towards Saudi Arabia has proved less harsh than was promised. Under President Biden, uh, the US rejoined the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, uh, under which 196 countries uh, have vowed to fight global warming uh, to keep the world's average temperature from rising to uh, any more than two degrees centigrade above where it was at the start of the Industrial Revolution, or uh, better if they can't hold that increase to one 
and a half degrees centigrade. We appear to be hostages to technologies and fuels that have made the modern world as rich as it is, uh, but given their environmental impact, uh, threaten to make life in a postmodern future precarious in some regions of the world. What is our energy future? Uh, a big question, and we have an excellent panel of three guests to address it. We start with Jason Bordoff, uh, who is a co-founding dean of Columbia University's Climate School. Uh, dean Bordoff is a Harvard-educated lawyer by training. His field of expertise is energy policy. Uh, he served in the Treasury uh, during the Clinton administration and later in the Obama White House, where he rose to the post of Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change on the staff of the National Security Council. Uh, Jason Bordoff, thank you very much for joining us today. It's good to see you. I wonder if you can begin by giving us a, 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 a snapshot. And first, let's deal with this as a country. How do we generate electricity, let's say? Uh, uh, and where do we get the fuel to do it? Yeah, and if we're thinking about climate change and energy more broadly, of course, it's important to think beyond just electricity. We get a meaningful amount of energy as electricity, but we use a lot as fuels for heating our homes, for uh, driving our cars, for making things like steel and cement. Electricity is part of it. And when you look at the energy system overall, um, in the US and, and globally, it's not that different. Uh, it's still a hydrocarbon-based global energy system. About 80% of the world's energy, about 80% of US energy, comes from oil, gas, and coal. And that 80% figure hasn't changed in decades. The total emissions from that 80% has gone up because the denominator's gotten bigger as the world gets wealthier, and not just, you know, not the US and Europe even, but when you think of emerging market countries, developing countries, as GDP goes up, people tend to use more energy and that leads to uh, economic growth. So we're using more energy year after year. Uh, the percentages uh, are not changing nearly rapidly enough if you think about what it means to get to a, a, a net zero um, uh, economy. So the growth rates, the annual rate at which clean energy, zero carbon energy is growing, are by far the fastest. But it takes a long time to turn a small number into a big number, even when you have rapid annual growth rates. So uh, still, still a minority. It's well, moving from renewable energy. Well, that's 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 a snapshot of the world today. If we if we look ahead to 2050, and we succeed in achieving the goals of the of the Paris Agreement, and temperatures haven't risen any more than than uh, two two degrees centigrade, how different is the is is the snapshot? What how how big a change does there have to be? for us to achieve the aims that we've signed on to. Yeah, it's it's a staggering change and we should recognize how far off track we are today. Uh, the Over the last decade, we've seen rising ambition on climate, not just two degrees, but well below two degrees, 1.5 degrees Celsius, net zero by 2050, driven by the science of climate change. I mean, this is the world is telling us these are the kind of targets we need to hit. It would require an unprecedented level of transition uh, away from hydrocarbons toward the bulk, uh, probably somewhere close to a majority, if not a majority, would be renewable energy, a lot more nuclear, carbon capture, hydrogen made from zero carbon sources of energy. We're not using zero oil and gas in a world that's net zero. 
according to the International Energy Agency, if you get to net zero by 2050, you're using about a quarter as much oil, about half as much natural gas. So that's a lot less than today, but it's not zero. And that's partly because we use oil for things we don't burn it for, like making plastics. And, and also because there's usually in these models some meaningful amount of carbon capture technology. We have emissions, but then we capture and, and store the emissions somewhere else. But it's a wholesale evolution unlike anything we've, we've seen uh, before. Just to put that in context, when you think of energy transition, when you hear that phrase, people might think about, you know, a chart from zero to 100%. And over time, going back 150 years, we've seen these great shifts uh, from wood to coal and coal to oil and oil to gas, and increasingly, though still small, renewable energy. That's, that's from zero to 100%. If you look at total metric tons of energy, total energy use, which is where emissions come from, uh, we've never used less of anything, you know, we've, 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 because the pie has gotten bigger, we're using so much more energy. So the history of energy is one of energy, clean energy additions, yes. not transitions. We're using more, more coal, more oil, more gas than we did before. Uh, we need to not only meet all of the growth in global energy demand with zero carbon sources or otherwise capture and remove the CO2, but we need to replace the 80% of the mix that today comes from hydrocarbons. And again, that number is getting bigger every year, still not smaller. I mean, it, it 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 sounds like to say that that these that these are very ambitious targets is is a great understatement. Uh, are are they are they pie in the sky targets? Or are we should should we assume that that uh, two degrees uh, Celsius? I, I should say not centigrade. The the two degrees is impossible to uh, to hold us to. I, I certainly don't want to say it's impossible. I mean, we know how to get there. Broadly speaking, we can we we have a sense of what the technologies would be. Is it possible to do heroic things and to of kind of war scale mobilization and, and have massive shifts in the economy, uh, we can, is it necessary? Because the impacts of climate change will be uh, more costly than the cost of this transition. I think it is, but I do think it's important not to sort of be Pollyannish or, or understate the ambition, how difficult this is. I think there's often, it, it's helpful to have hope and optimism. I certainly want, want to have it. Working with young people every day at a university helps give you that, but it doesn't mean we should underestimate the scale of the challenge before us if you really want to take a target like net zero by 2050. And again, we see that each and every day today. Yeah. Uh, oil, gas, coal use are all going up each and every year other than in a pandemic or a recession. You've written about an unintended consequence of the move to, to decarbonization that uh, we might expect, it would seem that that process, uh, if, if, as it gains momentum, uh, would lead to lower prices for, uh, for oil and gas, for fossil fuels, uh, for, for diminished demand. But you say instead we should expect great volatility uh, with prices, uh, sometimes going up, sometimes going down. Why? Why should that be? Well, I think that's, we think we talk a lot about the end state, net zero by 2050, a great achievement if we could get there, maybe we get there a little bit later, but net zero in an end state. We don't talk as much about the multi-decade process of getting from here to there and how messy, messy and uncertain and volatile it's going to, we're going to have shifts in policy from Obama to Trump to Biden, we're going to make bets on certain technologies and maybe get them wrong. Uh, we are seeing challenges today in response to a severe energy crisis and a shortfall in Russian energy, where people, including President Biden, who cares deeply about climate, are saying we need more oil and gas from some sources. Can the U.S. refiners, can the U.S. oil industry refine more oil? You don't do that in the next one, two, three years. Those are multi-decade investments. Well, people might not make those investments today if they think the world might need it for a few years, but not in the long term. So we're gonna have periods of underinvestment, the pace at which demand falls. If, if supply falls faster than demand falls, you get market crunches, price spikes, shortages. 
and that could lead to more volatility and periods of higher prices and actually could make petrostates for periods of time more necessary and relevant and influential before they become less influential. That is maybe not unrelated to the fact that one of the items on President Biden's agenda when he goes to Saudi Arabia is talking about more oil production. You've cautioned against uh, countries abandoning old energy uh, generating systems before new systems are in place uh, to actually uh, be dependable. Did Germany make a mistake by, uh, by going off nuclear uh, and shifting uh, away from it, uh, uh, increasing its dependence on Russian natural gas? I think it did. I think we see that today. I think uh, we, for the reasons I said earlier, given how challenging it's going to be to get to these goals, I think we need all tools at our disposal. We need a lot of renewable energy, solar and wind for sure, batteries, electrification, but we're going to need nuclear, we're going to need hydrogen, we're going to need carbon capture technology and carbon removal technology, and it's still going to be a Herculean task to get there. Uh, nuclear is certainly not without risk, but for a variety of reasons, improvements in the technology, a recognition that we need nuclear as we need, we need firm zero carbon baseload, meaning renewables are intermittent. Sometimes the sun shines, sometimes it doesn't, the wind blows, sometimes it doesn't. Nuclear can run 24-7. We need some um, some sources that can run all the time in order to help lower the cost of getting to net zero. And when you shut down nuclear power, we've seen it in parts of the East Coast, we've seen it in California, we've seen it in Germany, um, at least in the near to medium term, natural gas is usually what fills the gap. That was true in Germany and you know was not the whole reason they were so dependent on Russia. It was a set of policy choices they made, but it certainly didn't help. Uh, you mentioned uh, thinking over the past 100, 100, 150 years. I wanted to run some numbers past you, some 200, uh, some numbers over the past 200 years from uh, the Canadian scientist Václav Smil's uh, book, uh, uh, How the World Really Works. He writes that since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, uh, humans, since around 1800, uh, humans have gained so much energy at their disposal that it's as if every human today enjoys the year 1800 equivalent of 60 adults working day and night uh, for just that person. Uh, and in, in affluent countries like ours, uh, we enjoy our ancestors equivalent of over 200 people laboring nonstop for each of us. Uh, the age of fossil fuel has uh, brought with it phenomenal growth in wealth and convenience and leisure and you name it. Uh, does going off fossil fuel uh, ultimately mean giving up the kind of growth we have experienced? Uh, or can we continue to grow and have the equivalent of still more 1800 uh, humans working for each of us uh, as we decarbonize? I, I certainly don't think it needs to. It is an important point that Vakov Smell makes in his book, this one and, and all of them are, are, are really brilliant to read. We have a severe climate crisis, largely because of the emissions from consuming fossil fuels. Consuming fossil fuels has dramatically expanded prosperity, GDP growth, and improved well-being in terms of the energy. Energy makes people's lives better, refrigerating your food, uh, air conditioning, um, medicine, keeping your medicine cold, uh, on and on. Uh, and, 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 and we consume huge amounts in the US and Europe and other developed uh, nations developing world uh, has consumed almost none at all. That won't stay that way. We don't want it to stay that way. We want the developing world to use more energy for prosperity and for rising levels of GDP. Um, we need to do it in a way that doesn't lead to the same number uh, amount of carbon emissions. That means dealing with the carbon emissions in some way or finding zero carbon sources of energy. And we know how to do some of that. Um, 
the 90 plus percent decline in solar costs and wind costs and battery costs over the last decade has been phenomenal. So clean energy can do a lot more today than we thought it could you know, 15 years ago. We still need some more technological innovation to bring to commercial scale. Other technologies we'll need because renewables can do a lot, but they can't do everything. Mm -hmm. But we broadly know what that toolkit can look like. And we have technology today that can capture and store CO2, that can make uh, zero carbon fuels. We just have to advance the technology, bring the cost down and get it to commercial scale. Sometimes it may be cheaper than fossil fuels. Sometimes it may be more expensive, but I think on balance, a cost of making that transition, if we do it in a smart way, is less than the cost of not dealing with it, which means the cost of climate change impacts themselves. Dean Bordoff, stick with us because we'll be coming back to you in a little while for the question and answer period. But thank you very much for, for being our guest today. Thank you. And uh, we turn now to our second panelist, Deborah Gordon. Uh, she is a senior principal in the Climate Intelligence Program at RMI, that's a think tank focused on energy. She's also a senior fellow at the Watson Institute of International and Public Affairs at Brown University. By training, she's a chemical engineer, and she started out at a big oil company, Chevron. Uh, at RMI, she leads the uh, Oil and Gas Solutions Initiative. Uh, she's the author also of the book, No Standard Oil. Uh, Deborah Gordon, welcome to the program. Pleasure. Uh, I, I just used the phrase oil and gas solutions, and I realized that to a lot of people who think of themselves as environmentalists, that's an oxymoron. I'm talking about the problem, not, not, not the solution. But um, as I understand what, what, what you've written and what you've worked on, uh, oil and gas uh, are gonna be with us for, for, for quite a while. And there's a huge difference between oil and gas that are produced by best practices and by worst practices. And we can control a lot of emissions just following best practices. Is that about right? That's right. I mean, I asked this question to myself a decade ago when fracking really took off. And I thought to myself, the hypothesis was if the oil and gas that we're accessing is changing, which it is, I mean, fracked oil is nothing like the, you know, kind of conventional oil out of um, Saudi Arabia, different chemistry, different physics, and also different processes. If all of those things about oil and gas are changing, what does that mean for emissions? because we can't really assume that they'll all be the same. And that led to the research that the book, Robert, that you cited, No Standard Oil is about, and then also a web tool that's open source called the Oil Climate Index Plus Gas that RMI just released modeling half the world's oil and gas. And there is no standard oil to the point where the difference in emissions intensities between two equivalent barrels of oil and gas could be a factor of five. So in other words, there's a lot of emissions right now that we're not avoiding because we're focusing largely as we have the last 30 years on reducing demand, which is of course very important. But if we use, as Jason was saying, if we're, if we're fortunate enough to be able to use 25% less of our oil or 50% less of our gas, I mean, really cut away at the demand. The question is what oil supplies and gas supplies will remain? Because if they are twice or five times more carbon intensive, climate intensive than what we might otherwise use, we'll have worked really hard not to make much of a dent in this problem. Whereas if we're using the lowest intensity mm -hmm. barrels of oil and gas, these are multiplier effects and the climate needs as many multiplier effects as it can get. Uh, give us an example of, of uh, best practices. What's, what's a country uh, or a company or a country that does an exceptionally good job of extracting oil or gas? You know, it, 
Every country has wide ranges, unfortunately, but I will hold out Norway as one of the countries that is an example here. And there are others as well, um, but Norway approaches, they've been at this for about 50 years, you know, offshore. There's, their offshore platforms are not like ours. They're not relatively individual operations by different operators, you know, dotting the Gulf of Mexico, they're integrated systems. So a certain platform will produce and a certain platform will re-inject and a certain platform will process. And then they work in a system and they are more and more getting to the point where they're importing electricity to run all of their units, their generator, their heat, their steam from onshore hydro. So they're using renewables as inputs to the oil and gas system. And that's what's so different. And that's part of what Jason was talking about, opportunities to go here. Oil and gas exist on the back of oil and gas. We use natural gas, diesel, petroleum, coke. We use a lot of really dirty fossil fuels to produce, transport, process oil and gas before I even go to the gas station. And that's a huge opportunity for this sector to cut its emissions. Uh, if you were to look for the other end of the scale, by the way, with uh, the the, the anti-Norway, uh, where, where would you look to find the most expensive uh, in, uh, and, and the worst environmental impact from oil and gas drilling? Yeah, and we, you know, on the OCI Plus, the Soil Climate Index Plus Class web tool, we have a shadow price. You can actually look at this both in terms of emissions and also in terms of, you know, what it would cost if we actually did have a carbon price. But I have to say, one of the only benefits I can think of from um, what's happening horrifically in Ukraine is that the Russian gas isn't flowing as mightily because it is so bad in Russia that you can see methane emissions from space. What's happening is the pipelines, which are remote in Siberia, they're cracking under melting permafrost. So there's gas that's coming. Less gas is almost going through the pipeline than what's being actually, you know, expelled from the pipeline in a lot of those places. And there are other countries that have issues. I'd say that the Texas Permian in, is not great. I mean, Overall, there are thousands of producers there and some are much better than others. But overall as a basin, we flare and get rid of the waste that gas way too much. We're not putting it into productive use, which is you know, a shame, especially with a warming world. You, you told me that, that you can see a, that there's a distinct difference between the Permian, this big oil uh, field in the Southwest that is in Texas and the part that's in New Mexico, that the, the, the difference in, in actions on either side of the state line uh, are significant in terms of how much leakage there is and how much how much pollution there is. Yeah, and part of that comes down to how old the system is. I mean, think Spindletop. Texas has been at this a very long time, and there's a lot of legacy production there. Um, part of it is regulation. I mean, New Mexico just has a much tighter handle on regulation than Texas has had historically. And part of it is that in New Mexico, it's a very gas-oriented system, so they have a lot of takeaway capacity. California, say, imports a lot of its gas from New Mexico, so there are ready buyers. Whereas in the Permian in Texas, it's an oil system. So the economics are very liquids-based. I make money producing liquid, producing oil. So, you know, I'll throw the gas away and I'll still make a lot of money. So as you said, if, if we could reduce the amount of, of oil and gas that we use, uh, and if the oil and gas that we used, it, it, would, it would matter a great deal whether we were using uh, the uh, 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 best practice produced or the worst practice produced. Uh, my question is, is what Norway is doing 
more expensive uh, than what Russia is doing by not looking, not taking care of its pipeline in Siberia, would, would they have a price advantage uh, in trying to survive the age of decarbonization? Or are they losing so much oil that, 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 that in fact, they're, they're, they're inefficient? You know, it's interesting, climate change is going to have these feedback loops and a lot of infrastructure beyond the pipelines in Russia are going to be harmed by climate change, sea level rise, hurricanes, they almost lost a um, one of the ports in Texas during a big hurricane a couple of years ago when the tankers turned around and almost went on onto the ground. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of disruption. And I think this goes into the adaptation category, that thinking ahead on what systems we want to build anew. A big problem in the oil gas sector, especially the oil sector, is this is an industry that's been around for over a century. And a lot of these systems and a lot of the engineering practices were designed in the, like 1930. You know, they were not designed when we were thinking climate change was an issue. So part of it, your questioning will be more expensive for legacy operators. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're operating an old system and making money, it's always going to be more expensive to retrofit. But I know that the global south countries, a lot of the old Commonwealth countries from the UK, um, Ghana, Guyana, Gabon, they want to get into this business. Now, many people in the north are saying, no, you can't, no oil and gas. The reality is some of these countries might actually leapfrog mm -hmm. what we are able to do and do it a whole different, better way for that remainder of the oil and gas that stays in the it's economy. Like, just like countries that, that uh, never bothered finishing the terrible landline telephone system and went straight to, to, uh, to, to mobile phones. You said that this, this question for you began uh, considering the difference between fracking and other kinds of, of, of extraction. Um, uh, is, is to you, is fracking an, an inherently, well, good or bad way of extracting uh, 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 oil or gas? The one thing to realize is fracking is nothing like what we used to do. So anything that's new has risks. And it's not as if we're managing the conventional oil production and gas all that perfectly, but now we have new risks. Um, big risk with fracking is methane. So these are lighter oils and wet gases that come out with fracking. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas emission, a greenhouse gas, and they leak. These systems just aren't designed to be leak free. And that's a big problem. Fracking also has issues with water. You know, you're going in and changing the substructure of the, you know, of the reservoir. So it introduces new risks. And honestly, it's about a decade old. And I think we're still learning a lot about what those risks are, but we're not, they do avoid us. Fracking does avoid us relying too heavily on extra heavy oils because the extra heavy oils, and those are from California, from Canada, Venezuela, Mexico, our refineries selectively use these very heavy oils and very heavy oils have way too much carbon in them. You have to first unearth all of this weight of carbon out of the ground. Then you have to separate it and crack it and throw a lot of heat and steam at it. And now, we're, as Matthew will talk about, then we have to design these huge systems to do carbon capture for all the carbon that was in the ground in the first place. So the good news about fracking is it's moved us more to the lighter barrels of oil that are much easier to turn into the things that we depend on day in and day out, petrochemical feedstock, gasoline, jet fuel, things like that. Well, Debbie Gordon, thank you very much. Stick with us because we're going to have the Q&A session in about 10 minutes. But thank you for, for pointing out that uh, 
when we speak of oil, we're using a very crude term, yes? Our third panelist, as, uh, as Deborah Gordon just, just mentioned, is Matthew Hudson. He's a contributing writer to The New Yorker, uh, where he covers science and technology. In an article back in April, he reported on the technology that's being developed to address a key problem with renewable energy. Uh, the title of that article says it all, the renewable energy revolution will need renewable storage. Matthew Hudson, welcome uh, to the to our- Thanks for having me. And uh, before you talk about the solutions, I want you to describe the problem a little bit. Uh, wind and solar energy depend on phenomena that are actually beyond the control of the oil companies or the energy companies. Uh, how windy or sunny is it, or how windy or sunny isn't it? This is the problem. Yeah, so when we talk about renewable energy, we often talk about the source of the renewable energy, uh, building more solar panels, building more wind farms, and we neglect to talk about what we do with that energy once we have it. Uh, so the wind doesn't always blow when you need it. The sun's not always out when you need it. Um, so the the energy that we use doesn't always perfectly line up with the energy that's provided by nature. And so we need to store up that energy when we have it and then use it later. And there are various options that are being used right now. The biggest is called pumped hydro, which accounts for about 90% of the uh, storage energy, uh, energy storage for the grid, which is basically you have two reservoirs. You use the electricity to pump the water from the lower reservoir up to the higher reservoir. Uh, and then when you need the electricity later, you let the water come down and it spins a turbine and that generates electricity again. Then there are also lithium ion batteries. Um, and those are uh, being used increasingly often, uh, but both of these have problems that we can talk about later. Yeah, well, one problem, the aforementioned, I promise that I will I'll, I'll limit my Václav Smil references in the course of this of this entire hour. But he 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 wrote that uh, uh, pumped hydro storage uh, in that operation uh, about a quarter of the generated electricity is used pumping the water up from the lower reservoir to the higher reservoir to be ready to come down and produce produce energy. So that uh, it's an expensive way of, of of storing energy. So all of these uh, solutions for energy storage none of them are 100% efficient. So you're never gonna get all of the energy back out that you use, that you put in. Um, that's not the biggest problem. Uh, with pumped hydro, uh, you can't do it everywhere. You need the right geographical location. Uh, you need two locations, one's higher, one's lower, that are close to each other, um, that are not too, where you don't have cities, you don't have things that are already built there. So it needs to be kind of out of the way, but close enough to an urban center where, where people are, are going to be using the energy. Uh, and then there are also regulations uh, about where you can build them. So there's sort of a, a NIMBY problem. Uh, and then it's, they're very expensive to build, and it can take a decade or more to build them. So in the U.S., they're not being built very often. They're being built more often in China, but right now in the, right now in the U.S., um, they're not being built very often. And, and um, the issue, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to touch on lithium-ion batteries. Yes, lithium-ion batteries. One of the issues there is that uh, you don't have to go digging for oil to run a lithium-ion battery. You have to go digging for cobalt. And uh, yes. I gather the Arabian Sea of cobalt is in the, is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, yeah. That, that's where the cobalt is. 
Yeah. So lithium ion batteries, you can use them anywhere. They're very convenient and they're very reliable. Uh, they have multiple issues. One is the is that they rely on lithium and cobalt. Uh, and there are problems with mining those. It's, it's not very environmentally friendly to mine them. Uh, and there are supply chain issues. They're, they're not evenly distributed around the world, those two elements. Uh, sometimes they come from countries that don't have uh, good working practices. So they might rely on, on child labor, for instance. Um, and then if there are political issues, they might not be, you know, might not have a reliable source uh, to obtain those elements to build the batteries. Um, they also, the batteries typically last for only three or four hours before they, they're out of charge. Um, so it'll you know, last longer than that. You need to buy more batteries, which gets expensive. Uh, and over time they degrade and you can't recycle them very often. They're also dangerous. Sometimes they can, can catch fire. Uh, so there are lots of issues and they have become more, um, much more, much cheaper over the years, but experts say there's a limit to how cheap they can get before you bump up against, uh, you know, physical limits. Do you get the impression that the uh, the future of electric vehicles will be constrained by just how much uh, lithium and cobalt can be can be mined and can be uh, used to make electric cars? Not as much. Um, they're sort of the first priority right now. People are willing people are willing to pay a lot for electric vehicles. Um, and they sort of take precedence over grid energy storage. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you don't have the, people don't drive cars typically for, you know, 24 seven. So you might drive for a couple hours and then you can recharge. So, so that sort of eliminates the problem there. Better suited, better suited to that purpose than to yeah. the grid. You, um, after you, you described, I think very vividly, this notion of two, uh, two lakes or two reservoirs, one higher than the other and pumping water up with electricity when there is electricity and then. Uh, letting the uh, the water become a hydroelectric dam, I guess. When 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 you yeah. open it up, um, you you also described in the New Yorker, and I uh, you have to tell me if this exists or only in, in people's head, a, a kind of use of solid blocks uh, performing yeah. the same purpose as as the water. That is, you would use the electricity to raise what strike me in my mind as sort of like solid block elevators up to the the top of a structure. And then when electricity is needed, drop them and the kinetic energy of the fall. Does yeah. that exist? Is, it, is, this a, is there such a place? Um, not yet. So the article focuses on these alternatives to pumped hydro and to, to um, lithium ion batteries. And so one place I visited was uh, a testing site for a company called Energy Vault mm -hmm. in Switzerland. And their first idea was to use a crane to stack these blocks made of uh, dirt, basically stuck together with a kind of polymer. And you'd use the electricity to power the crane to just stack blocks up on top of each other. And then later you would lower the blocks, which would then you know, turn, a, turn a motor or um, turn a generator to produce electricity again. Um, they've moved on to a situation where they have, it's basically an automated warehouse where they use elevators to lift blocks up and then uh, sort of trolleys to move them to the center and you store these blocks on the upper levels. Um, and then later you can store them on the lower levels to produce electricity again. Uh, at the site that I saw, they did not have this working. They were still, uh, they had sort of a, a structure that didn't have elevators and trolleys on it yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still something that they're developing. So this does not exist yet. They, they have a, some projects in other countries and in China and Australia that they're working on, um, but nothing that is, you know, full speed ahead. And then you also reported on uh, it's sort of a variant on pumped hydro, but instead of, of the water going up, uh, you, you're pressurizing the water under the ground. You're kind of using yeah. fracking techniques to create, uh, a, I guess, pressure from the water that then powers, creates electricity. Yeah. So there's a, a company called Quidnet uh, based in Texas that is using this. And one advantage is that they're using a lot of the same technologies and equipment that the fracking industry has used. So basically, they're just pumping water underground. Uh, and then it kind of creates what they call a lens. It, it, it splits two layers of rock and it creates a layer of water in between them. And it's sort of squeezed between the layers of rock and stored it at high pressure. Then later they can release the water. It, it comes back up, uh, turns a turbine and that produces electricity again. And again, the, the reason why this is so important uh, is that if we were really to have uh, our power grid powered largely by uh, plants using renewable uh, uh, energies, the, the new renewables, uh, wind, solar, uh, are, are going to have lots of downtime where, where they won't, be, they won't yeah. be feeding the system with electricity. Yeah. Um, so first, I also want to touch on some of the other solutions that, mm-hmm. that people have talked about. Um, so some people have mentioned that it's sort of caveman technology. These are very simple concepts. So it's not this, this kind of high-tech electrochemical batteries. It's things like, you know, lifting up blocks or, or pressurizing water. Uh, another common solution is heating things up, um, molten salt or, or metal, just making things hot and then, you know, using the heat later. Um, or pressurizing water, or sorry, pressurizing air uh, in, in caverns or in tanks. Um, or spinning things around uh, and storing the energy as, as momentum. So these are kind of simple physical concepts. And, and there's a, this whole plethora of ideas that, yeah. that people are exploring, which is you know, fun to think about. Um, another is, is creating hydrogen, which can then be used in uh, fuel cells. Um, but yeah, so it's, a lot of it is managing grid management, uh, figuring out uh, both the distribution of energy and when people will be using it and the economics uh, so that you can have a, a a range of solutions that can store electricity for varying amounts of time. And all these solutions have different pluses and minuses. So it, it, I don't think there's gonna be one solution that will solve all of these problems. There will be different things at different price points, different levels of efficiency, uh, and that store electricity in different places and for different amounts of time. Well, uh, Matthew Hudson, thank you very much. Stick with us right now, because I'm going to bring back uh, our other panelists, Deborah Gordon and Jason Gordoff. And uh, let me hear from each of you about what you've heard from your fellow panelists and if there's something that you'd like to either uh, uh, underscore or undermine uh, of of what they've said. Jason, first. Yeah, no, it was really, I learned a lot, really insightful comments and and agreed with with what was said. We're going to need Oh, it is important to distinguish between uh, between different types of oil and how they produce and the great work Deborah's done for, for a long time. I think it's fair to say that while the points she was making are 
things we ought to be looking at in terms of where production comes from. That doesn't mean it is what we will look, look to in terms of where production will come from. So you would imagine it won't only be the cleanest barrels, it might be the lowest cost barrels. Uh, often those are in the Gulf, uh, Gulf Arab states and, and in OPEC countries. Um, you might imagine that in a world that gets to very ambitious climate goals, certain countries put much more stringent restrictions on whether you can produce um, than in other countries. And we see a lot of pressure, for example, here in the US to restrict oil and gas production as part of a strategy. So even if certain barrels are cleaner, you can imagine in Norway, for example, that might be a country that in which climate activism might pick up pace before you would see it in a country like Saudi Arabia. Maybe they'd restrict their production. So a bunch of other factors will determine where oil and gas gets produced in a transition. And the only point I make about long duration storage, which we absolutely need to balance the intermittency of renewables, um, the, even that alone, I don't think in all the modeling I'm familiar with, we're going to get most of our uh, zero carbon electricity from renewables with both short term and long term storage. But we are still it, it is cheaper in all that modeling if you look at scenarios that involve some degree of firm dispatchable power electricity that can be deployed 24-7, that could be gas with carbon capture, it could be nuclear power, yeah. whether it's the International Energy Agency, the Princeton did a big study of net zero across the United States, a range of others. Uh, the ones I'm familiar with show that it's cheaper to get there if some meaningful amount, estimates vary, 10, 20, 30% of electricity is also coming from some of those uh, electricity sources that can run any time of the day. Okay, Deborah Gordon, uh, comments on what you've heard. Yeah, I mean, Jason raised a good point about the Gulf, and it's interesting. Gulf, well, Saudi Arabia and Qatar have very low climate intensity oil and gas, so they're kind of winning the charge and they know it. Um, they've been at it a long time, but it raises another point that maybe was on the, the sidelines of what we've been talking about, the lack of transparency in the sector. And I think Jason talked about price volatility and the issues that we're gonna face um, trying to make our climate goals and you know, deal with what you said, Robert, inflation. I mean, a lot of these other countervailing forces. And the reality is we don't have a lot of transparency here. And I think the Gulf has a big incentive. Saudi Arabia, number one, has a big incentive to be fully transparent they are the world market. They mm -hmm. want everyone to buy their product, their crude, they're building more refineries and they have low intensity production to boot. So I think that will really help. Um, with Matthew, I was laughing to myself because the lithium conundrum is so funny because we're finding a lot of lithium in produced water in Texas. So in fact, some people would call West Texas a water producer, not an oil producer. If they were very serious about this, they produce more water than they produce oil and then they have to dispose of it. But it turns out a lot of that water has a lot of lithium in it as it comes underground from those reservoirs. And I can see the oil industry becoming a lithium provider. You know, this whole industry, it's what Jason was saying, it's kind of up for grabs, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know? And then the last thing I'll say that ties together what was said, I really think that we need surgical 2% solution thinking here. I think we're very much oriented to almost like, you know, New Year's resolution of I'm going to lose 30 pounds this year. You know, instead, in order to really be healthy, you have to just change little by little what you do. And it's great to have a goal. It's great to have an aspiration. But I think that's been guiding us since the Arab oil embargo mm -hmm. and not the real understanding of these sectors and how to deal with them. And Matthew Hudson, uh, comments on what you've heard? 
Yeah, I think what, uh, what Jason and Deborah both make clear is that it's not just about science and the technology and, and not just about economics. There's also a, a big um, you know, political element to this. Um, so some countries may produce uh, energy sources more efficiently or, or more cleanly or cheaper than other countries, but that doesn't mean that we should necessarily, necessarily rely on them. Um, there may be conflicts in those countries. We, you know, there's the issue with Russia right now. Um, and then just forecasting the future, it, it's hard to tell at what rate we will be decreasing our reliance on fossil fuels. So we were, you know, as, as Jason was saying, we'll, we'll still use them for certain, for energy production and we'll still use them for manufacturing things like plastic. Uh, and we'll still need to keep building the resources to, to process these natural fuels uh, or these uh, fossil fuels. But that's a huge investment. And, you know, we have to figure out the, the trade-offs in terms of, you know, things might cost more or less now versus more or less in the future. And we don't really know. There's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, and then there's also another element, which is the sort of public opinion. Um, there's a lot of nuance to these issues. People might say like, oh, fossil fuels are bad. We shouldn't invest in these things. Um, we should just cut all reliance on them. But it, the picture isn't that simple. Um, and it might be hard to communicate some of these complexities to, uh, to the public. I'd like to, uh, to put what you've just said about politics uh, to uh, Jason, who um, uh, not too long ago was, was doing energy policy on the National Security Council staff. But if you were, uh, if, if, if you had been on the trip to Saudi Arabia that President Biden uh, took, here you are, president of a country where uh, people are, are paying uh, twice at the pump what they were paying a couple of years ago. Uh, it's, it's a huge burden on lots of Americans. Uh, and um, you, you, uh, you're talking with, with, with the Saudis. What's the message to them? I think there's uh, there, a starting point is, I think there's a perception, at least in some energy and climate circles, that this trip is about oil. Gasoline prices are high. Not many places you can get extra oil supply from. We released our strategic oil stocks. Um, he called on the US oil industry to produce more. There's not that much more they can do beyond what they're already doing. So now call Riyadh, and that is uh, something presidents of both parties have done for 50 years. Um, but I do think it's important to note there are many other primary drivers of this visit and why the team of Middle East experts around President Biden think it is important to have a strong U.S.-Saudi relationship for reasons of stability in the Middle East, counterterrorism, intelligence sharing, and, and, and all the rest. In addition to that, the fact that oil prices are high and gasoline and diesel prices are high and that's cause, contributing to inflation is certainly an extra factor. And I suspect publicly and, and privately, you'll see continued calls from the US and some others in Europe for OPEC, largely Saudi Arabia, to uh, increase oil production even faster. We should recognize there's a limit to how much they can actually do. Uh, by the end of the summer, they will have finished a plan to put more oil on the market each and every month. They can go a bit beyond that, but not a huge amount beyond that. So if you think about how much oil Russia produces or how tight markets were even before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Saudi can help somewhat. They can't replace the lost oil supply if we really see Russian oil uh, off the market. So we should kind of keep our expectations uh, in check. 
but presumably, if Saudi oil actually did displace Russian oil in in the marketplace, Deborah, that would fit your example of of uh, seeing more of a uh, well, a, a better quality, a, a higher standard of oil in the market. Yeah, it also changes Russia's thinking. I mean, they're a resource rent state. They they can't exist very long. In, under an embargoed state. Although ironically, Iran has done okay <laughs> being embargoed, but I think a lot mm -hmm. of gray oil makes the market. That's Iranian oil. But it changes the signal to Russia to come back into the market if they're up against more responsible producers. So Thanks. that's the question. Like, would you discount the price of Russian oil when it comes back on the market because it's that much dirtier? And I think the satellites are going to help a lot with this and it will bridge the civil society question because i think that people ordinary citizens have a hard time imagining climate change and it's global and even oil and gas or energy gosh you know that's even a bigger pot and but when you start to see satellite images and you know that that methane is associated with air toxins that are polluting their communities i think it does change the conversation at home I would just add to that the reason to sanction Russian oil, maybe for Saudi or other supply instead, and is not because of climate. Yeah. And the message to Russia is not clean up your act to get it to market. It's stop murdering Ukrainians. But yeah. Just yeah, I think it's more a matter of someday if they ever behave better, they'd have to come back into the market. And there might be different conditions that they face when they come back into the market. Um, Matthew Hudson, I have a question for you about, about uh, research and uh, you, the, the projects that you've described. Uh, are not being done, unless I've missed something, they're not being done by the existing big energy companies. Uh, they're, they're, they're outsiders. Is, is there, um, I mean, I'm thinking back to a day when Exxon, or it used to be SO Labs, uh, ranked with Bell Labs as one of the you know, most creative uh, science shops in the, in, in, in the country. Is there creative research being done within big oil and gas companies? There may be, but... The, their incentive is to, to keep us reliant on oil and gas and coal, uh, whereas these technologies tend to pair best with renewable energy, with, with solar and wind. Um, they don't exclusively pair with those. There are also uses for just keeping the grid stable, for instance. And a couple of years ago in Texas, there was a big power outage um, because the, the natural gas plants kind of seized up. Uh, so these are technologies that are, are applicable with any energy source, um, but they will benefit renewable energy the most. And so that's why you have a lot of startups that are not tied to oil and gas. Um, and they're receiving funding from, um, from the government, from the DOE, uh, or from investors uh, who see sort of a, a new kind of future. I'd like to hear from all of you about your your, your sense of the future of electronic vehicles uh, and um, whether you think we're, uh, what we've hit an inflection point and if only the supply chains were working, uh, we, we'd be seeing uh, big leaps in sales or whether it's going to remain, the electric vehicle is going to remain largely a luxury product uh, and uh, not, a, not a mass market vehicle. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm, I have an electric vehicle. I, I, I like it a lot. It's uh, my wife took my daughter 
visiting colleges uh, around the Northeast recently and rented a car because the amount of driving they had to do meant it was uh, would have been quite inconvenient to stop as often as they would have had to stop to charge. So I think there still are some barriers. I think we need to build out our charging infrastructure, need costs to come down a bit. And then the amount, if you get these to scale and really grow them at very large annual growth rates, we do start to really need to think about the issues of critical minerals and the kind of inputs we need to build the batteries. But the growth rates are tremendous. Uh, they are great <laughs> vehicles and great products. Uh, I'm really optimistic that in many parts of the world, you're gonna see uh, electric vehicles compete very well, at a, even without government support, and they're gonna take off really quickly. There are different challenges in different parts of the world. So you gotta think about parts of the world we talked about before, which have trouble keeping their electricity system reliable 24 seven as it is. Mm -hmm switching from two and three wheeled vehicles like uh, you know tuk-tuks or, or bicycles to cars, there's a different set of challenges there thinking about trying to deploy electric vehicles. And we're gonna need this to be global. And even then we should not forget that cars around the world make up only about 20 or 25% of the world's oil use. So we got a bunch of other parts of yeah. where oil is used that we need to make progress on. And it'll be harder to electrify things like trucks and airplanes and all the rest. Deborah Gordon, uh, do, you, do you foresee an e-vehicle future? Yeah, I mean, my answer is less about the demand side and EVs taking over. I think that the signal is there. The fear is there from the oil industry to wonder, because gasoline and diesel, especially gasoline, has been the cash cow of this industry. And it opens the door for something I'm not seeing happen, which is concerning, to refining. The question is, refining is like a game of Jenga, you know, with those little blocks that go up. And if you poke out this 20% or 25 or 30% of gasoline, the refinery has to work technically and economically. And so it's not seamless going from no gasoline, no petrol demand, no gasoline demand to, you know, what we have today without really changing our refining sectors. So I think the hidden benefit of electric vehicles is decarbonizing refining. There's also another interesting thing that I'm noticing. There are a lot of commercials on TV with heavy trucks, having people go off-road and plug in their computers and have backup power in their driveways from there. So I think it's crossing over kind of a New England, California Prius mindset into like the Ford F-150 mindset. So it just tells me that, you know, things are, they're, they're hot. Yeah, the Ford F-150 is, this is a, this is a big step which is taking place. The Ford is going to take the it's cash cow, I guess, the, uh, the pickup truck and go electric. Matthew Hudson, you, are you very bullish on the uh, e-vehicle future? Just following the current trends, yeah, I, I expect them to continue. Uh, but a big issue is, is the grid. In some cases, driving an electric car can be even worse for the environment than driving a gas-fueled car uh, if the electricity comes from a coal plant, for instance. Uh, and so we need to energize them with green electricity. Uh, and then just to make them convenient uh, and to make them more appealing to people, you need the grid to be able to, you need charging stations. Right now there are gas stations everywhere. You need high speed charging stations everywhere also, like at, at homes and on highways and at work. Um, otherwise people are gonna have this anxiety about that sort of range anxiety. They're gonna run out of power and then what? This is supposed to be part of the infrastructure uh, bill, I thought, and um, uh, that, that we're supposed to, have a million new charging stations. And it has always struck me that any country that can put an overpriced coffee shop in every single, <clears throat> every other strip mall in America could, could create any, anything, any, uh, any geographical spread of, of necessary infrastructure. Since uh, 
Uh, we've achieved the, the implausible already. Uh, do you think the American household is about to become a lot more green, uh, uh, Jason? I mean, are there, are there things in our daily lives that, are, uh, that, that might change? And, and, uh, I think there are a lot more products available to people, demand-side technologies, even simple things that are pretty common now, like an S thermostat or something else. You can a lot of technologies for your home that can improve energy efficiency. I wrote a piece recently about how in response to the current energy crisis we're in, and it's gonna get worse before it gets better, particularly in Europe this winter, we're talking a lot about where extra supply can come from, like oil and gas. We're not talking enough about how to do, reduce demand and the need for conservation and efficiency and technology can help with that. I do think it's important just to acknowledge, you know, how much of this is a system problem though. I mean, you wanna be green in your home, but, you know, you plug something into the wall and it's not up to you. you. I mean, to some extent, there are some choices you can make, but for the most part, you know, it's a system that produces uh, airplanes and, and, and how they're fueled and when, when you get on one or how the steel and cement is made for the new uh, home you're building or, or where the electricity comes from. So there's a lot individuals can do. One of the most important things they can do is uh, encourage political change and policy change that will change that overall system that often is beyond their immediate control. Would uh, would the whoever wants to answer or has, an, has a thought, but would requiring uh, high-rise buildings uh, to have uh, solar panels on the, on their roofs, I mean, would would it be a significant change in our in our energy profile? The the place where I grew up, I have to say, uh, is a big project in Lower Manhattan called Stuyvesant Town, uh, and when Stuyvesant Town put uh, solar panels on its roofs. I believe the amount of, of solar paneling in Manhattan rose by something like 25 or 30 percent. That's a big, it's a big development, but but that that suggests that all of these high buildings, which unlike my current neighborhood, uh, that there aren't trees blocking the ceiling of the, the Seagram's building or something like that. You could be putting you could be putting panels <coughs> there. Would it would it produce a lot of electricity? Uh, Matthew, do you want to uh, um, I'm not super well read on this, but I imagine that putting solar panels on the top of a high rise, the ratio of solar panels to people in the building and energy use is probably not very high. So I don't, I don't think that is a, a huge solution. It's worth thinking about just construction. Um, about 8% of anthropogenic uh, emissions come from steel production. Another seven or 8% come from concrete production. And a lot of this is for, for buildings. Uh, so if we can figure out a way to uh, to reduce those emissions, uh, I wrote another article for the New Yorker about green steel producing um, steel in a way that reduces not CO2 but water into the atmosphere. Um, so there's a lot of room for improvement in, in construction. I'd like to 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 poll the three of you since you all uh, work in different ways uh, around questions of energy. And and before you go, I'd just like to ask you: Do you uh, uh, find yourself doing your work imbued with a sense of optimism of all the creative projects that are underway and changes that have taken place? Uh, or do you, you dread the year 2050 to think of what uh, life is actually going to be like <coughs> given the, the current pace of change? Uh, who'd like to start? Jason Bordoff? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it is hard sometimes to be optimistic when you are looking at work like Baklov Smills or spending time as I do with energy numbers, energy data. I think about the pandemic, right? In the middle, in the, in, 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 in the pandemic, we sh at, at the peak, we shut down something like half the global economy. About 4 billion people were under lockdown, couldn't move around. 
That year, carbon emissions fell 6%. We need carbon emissions to fall more than that each and every year through the rest of the decade if we want to be on track for goals like net zero by 2050. These are, these are really hard uh, uh, goals to achieve. And when you kind of work with the numbers, you realize how challenging it is. I will come back to something I kind of hinted at earlier, or maybe I said it, I can't recall. It, you can't not feel inspired every day when you work with young people, uh, as I do on a college campus. And it sounds, a little, I don't know, a little corny to say, but it's absolutely true. They're brilliant, they're passionate, and they care deeply about this issue mm -hmm. in a way that simply was not true for you know, their parents or their grandparents. And when they go to the polling place and when they talk to their political leaders, if this is not the number one issue, it's the number two or three issue. And we need that sense of urgency and mobilization in order to drive the technology and policy change we need. Deborah Gordon? Yeah, I mean, like Jason, I work here at Brown and being around students and feeling like there are those that wanna pick up the baton and really ask the right questions and get smarter. I really, I'm optimist. I'm, I'm just an optimist by nature though, but I do believe we can manage what we can measure. I really think that knowing things helps us. And when things get bad, we get better at solving them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how, as horrible as the pandemic has seen, been, people, you know, we're getting through this. We will survive this. And look at Zoom, you know, like new things have come out of it. So I, I mean, I am optimistic. That's not to say, you know, it's all easy and daisies. It's not. This is this is hard. You know, we. But who lives a life that isn't doesn't have challenges? Like it's real. I feel like we're living something that has to be dealt with, and it's very real. And Matthew Hudson from uh, without benefit of undergraduates uh, <laughs> surrounding. <laughs> well, by the way, I was an undergrad at, at Brown, and I, I was. So was I. So was I. Oh, nice. <laughs> was this planned? Um, Anyway, so I'm immersed in the, the science and technology world. So I'm incredibly, incredibly optimistic just about the cool new things that are being invented and the cool new findings that people are learning. Um, whether those will be implemented uh, and funded and um, you know, whether they'll, we have the, the will to, uh, and the coordination to use those tools to change the world. I don't know, it's hard to say whether I'm optimistic or, or pessimistic. Some things will get better, some things will get worse worse um overall a lot of things will change well matthew hudson jason bordoff deborah gordon thanks to all three of you for for being with us today uh and uh, many thanks to joshua plout and nate banzani ronnie Giuliano, and adrian kiss of american friends of ravine medical center uh, which produces global connections and also our technical director bobby grandone our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3 national charitable organization. Uh, it represents in the United States, uh, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Pedach Tikva in greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the website of the Friends Group is www.afrmc.org. Join us next month for free speech in an age of disinformation. Uh, with special guests, Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School, uh, Jelani Cobb, incoming dean at Columbia Journalism School, and Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. Mm -hmm.